Romans chapter 6. If you would, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and then we'll dive in and get to work. As is Paul's um, MO in the book of Romans, there's density in these passages. There is, it is heavy sledding. Uh, so I hope you're here ready to work and ready to, to benefit from uh, the truth that's here in this text. So if you'd follow along, I'm going to read to us Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So last week, if you were here, I... I did a kind of five-minute flyover of the entire book of Romans. And I'm not going to redo that here again this morning, but I think it's important for us to get a sense of the lay of the land and the entire letter of what the Apostle Paul is writing to these Roman believers. But what I think is important for us this morning is to see our verses, so verse 1 through 11, in the context of the flow of what Paul is doing in the whole chapter of Romans chapter 6. So remember from last week, at the end of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is, is gesturing in the direction of where he's going next in terms of theme. You see at the end of chapter 5, verse 21, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. And that's Paul tipping his hat toward what he's going to do in chapter 6 and 7 and 8. He's going to say, how does grace reign through righteousness. And in chapter 6, Paul does that by answering basically two questions. So he poses a question, the sort of imagined elocutor that he's interacting with. So he's saying, you might ask this question, and here's how I would answer that question. And so he's answering one question in verse 1. You see that? We're just going to walk through this. If you've got notes here, we're going to walk through this. So he asks a question in verse 1. Basically, the question is, should we sin in order to make God's grace look bigger? And that's what he treats in the first several verses. The answer basically is just no. And then verse 4 through 11 is is an explanation to undergird why the answer is such a loud and resounding no. And he says the life of sin should be abandoned because, and he unpacks that in verse 4 through 11. And then when you get to verse 15, he's going to ask another question. So the text is divided by these questions. Verse 15, should we sin because we're not under the law anymore? And here again, he's going to use the strongest Greek phrase at the time to say no. It is not just no. It is is not in a million years no. 
it is the way it is in your outline is what is wrong with you people for even asking this? It is, it is um, not in a thousand years. And he explains in verse 17 to 23 why the answer is such a solid no. Obedience to God is possible because, and he undergirds this with argument. And then right there in the middle section, in verse 12 to 14, is the practical application. It's how does the believer fight sin? So that's kind of how our passage breaks up. I think that might be helpful even as we're walking through our text and then next week we pick up where we have left off. Here's the thing to notice about, about our 11 verses at the beginning of chapter 6 is Paul is fixated on death. And we'll see that in a moment. He keeps using that word over and over, death and die and died and crucified and buried. And he's using this language all throughout these first 11 verses. So when I was... Um, when I was a little kid, if you wanted my excitement level to rise to a fever pitch instantly, um, you would tell me, hey, let's go play one of two games. Baseball in whatever form. It could be just pitch and catch or it could be the neighbors are outside at Girard Playground and they're ready to play ball, right? So that would be next level awesome. So baseball would be one and the other was cops and robbers. And there were, uh, you know, a thousand iterations probably around the world of cops and robbers that are going on. Our iteration, our approach was the rules were pretty clear. So um, everybody's got their toy gun. Usually your toy gun doesn't make a lot of noise, so you're going to help it along with your own mouth. You know, you're going to make some kind of sound with your mouth. You're going to sneak up on your opponent, whoever the enemy is. You're trying to sneak up and you're going to make your gun noise. And if you make your gun noise before they make their gun noise then they get to die, right? They have to fall right there. Even if it's, our next door to our house was Mr. Jack's house. Even if it's in Mr. Jack's bushes, if you got shot, you got to fall and slump over into the bushes, Mr. Jack's house, and you got to count to 30. And that gives the person who, you know, made the, got the jump on you a, a chance to get away, right? So that's how it went down. But the problem is that that latter game often led to disputes. Cops and robbers often led to arguments. Because here's what would happen is you'd, You'd shoot your opponent, and your opponent wouldn't fall. Instead, he'd go running off, usually serpentine, because you're shooting the whole way while he's running away, and he's just running in curves. And at that point, if you're on the street, you just hear two kids yelling back and forth in this dispute, and one of them is yelling, you're dead. And guess what the other one's yelling? You missed. Right, well, Paul here in Romans chapter 6, he's leveraging everything on this idea of, you're dead. You, you died. Grace caught you center mast and you fell. And the old you is, is gone. Count to 30. There's a new game. It's a reset now, right? That's kind of what he's talking about here. The big idea is really clear. And it's formed in a question and an answer. The question is, why should you, Christian, leave sin behind? And the answer is because you died. That's it. That's the main point of this text. It's a one-point outline, which I never do, one-point outlines. Uh, so I, but I do have three subpoints. So that's the good news. Here we go. Subpoint number one. God's grace is not glorified by our disobedience. God's grace is not glorified by our disobedience. So look in the text and you'll see that. Verse one and two. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's Paul's practical 
agenda. His aim is holiness. His aim is the sanctification of the believer. The believer becoming more and more dead to sin, more and more alive to righteousness. So he's going to leverage rich New Testament theology toward that end. He's basically going to say, what I've been talking about so far is absolutely true. Yes, Jesus takes us as we are. Yes, we're justified by faith and by faith alone. But, but grace doesn't leave us like we were. Takes us as we are, doesn't leave us like we were. So up to this point in Romans, the focus has been, if you will, on, on positional righteousness. That is the idea that we are in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. His righteousness covers the believer so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God without fear because we are in Jesus, in Christ, by faith and faith alone. So that's what the doctrine of justification is all about. Paul has been riffing on that for several chapters by the time we get to where we are. But what he's saying now is that not only does God rescue us just from the penalty of sin, but he rescues us from the power of sin. It's justifying grace, but the God who justifies us sanctifies all those whom he justifies. He moves us along. He transforms our heart. He moves in on the inner man and brings about change. So there's a kind of logical progression that I want us to feel the internal logic of the text. And it goes something like this. Christ died to sin, verse 8 through 10. We died with Christ, verse 3 through 7. Therefore, it follows we died to sin. Do you see, it's kind of a logical syllogism, if you will. Christ died to sin, verse 8 through 10. We died with Christ, verse 3 through 7. Therefore, verse 2, we died to sin. So let's just take those one at a time. Christ died to sin. Where do we see that? Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death Christ died, he died, there it is, to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So what does it mean that Jesus died to sin? It certainly doesn't mean that Jesus had committed sins and therefore when he died, he was freed from the sins that he had committed. It can't mean that, he was sinless. Otherwise, he couldn't have offered the once for all atoning sacrifice for us. It doesn't mean he had committed sins. Paul is talking here about sin as, as a ruling power, Remember, we talked about this last week. So there, there are two kings over humanity, representative kings. There is King Adam and there is King Jesus. There's the first Adam and there is the last Adam. And they create two utterly polarized realms. And the realm of Adam is a realm in which sin rules and sin has a scepter. And it points its scepter in the direction of every human and says, you die, you die, you die. You're judged, you're condemned. All are condemned, just sweeps all the way across the world and says, all of you are condemned because you're all under my reign, the reign of sin. And that's why in verse 9 it says, Jesus died, death no longer rules over him. You ever stop to think, death ruled over Jesus. So this is heavy theology, but think with me about this because this matters. Jesus can't take us out of Adam unless he steps inside. Now, he doesn't step inside 
with Adam's nature. He doesn't step, a, step inside of Adam with Adam's sin. That's the one thing that he doesn't have that you and I have when we're born in Adam. But look, if he's going to start a new representative humanity, he's got to come in with a clean slate like Adam did. He's going to come in with the ability, right, to create a new humanity. So what's happening here is death rules over Jesus. Until what? Until Jesus breaks death. How does Jesus break death? By death. In his dying, Jesus breaks the power of death. He breaks the power of sin. That's why the great classic that John Owen wrote in the 17th century on the atonement was famously named and entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. He climbs into death and breaks it from the inside. It's an awesome thing that Jesus does. He, he dies to the, to the realm where death and sin hold power. But this text says that theology needs to be leveraged for the change and transformation of the believer because it says in verse 10, Christ died to that realm. We died with Christ, verse 8. Therefore, we died to the realm where sin calls the shots. We died to the realm where sin bends its scepter in all directions and says, you die you're condemned. Look, for Paul, that's not crusty theology. That truth sets Christians free. Christians need to know that because it makes a massive difference if they know what, in fact, Jesus Christ has done. So let me give us a couple categories to think about. This next point in your notes, if you're taking notes, is legalism and license are destructive heresies that have hounded the church. And we'll unpack those terms in a second. But let me just say by way of introduction into this, I don't know any teachers who wear a badge that says, I'm a legalist. I'm I'm the legalist person, right? If you read my books, you will become impossibly arrogant. Or if you read my books, you will will struggle against a low-grade fever of guilt and shame for the rest of your life, right? Because that doesn't sell any books. So the legalist isn't showing his cards. Frankly, the legalists might not even know that the emphasis of that ministry is on moral betterment, right? I don't know anybody, on the other hand, who wears a badge that says, I'm the licensed person. The theological term for that is the is antinomianism. I'm the antinomian. I'm the person who tells Christians you should sin a lot. Just go hard, go all in, because the more you sin, the greater God's grace, it pops. It makes grace pop when you go all the way into sin. In other words, they're not saying in some overt and explicit way, you know, God's commands are really more like suggestions. They don't write that on the cover of the book, right? They're not saying if you read my books, you're probably going to have a lot of regrets because some of the stuff that you're going to get into is going to be super destructive. They're not saying that. They're not saying basically my goal in my writing and in my ministry is to sear your conscience so that you can do what you want and still be confident you'll go to heaven. But that is antinomian teaching. That is licensed teaching. In short, let me summarize it this way. Legalism says God can't forgive sinners unless they change first. God can't forgive sinners unless they change first. License says God can forgive sinners. What he can't do is change them. He can forgive, he does forgive, come and get your forgiveness, but there will be no change, there will be no transformation to expect. Look, the idea of Christian license plays really well in our culture. It plays really well in a kind of, I'm a spiritual person, I live my own truth 
culture. Because in our culture, in the cultural narrative, the, the gospel that we love is you set up the standards yourself. You set up the standards for right and wrong, and if and when you break those standards, you pardon yourself. That's, that's the beautiful thing that is license, right? It's every bit as based in self-atonement as legalism. Think about it. In legalism, you atone for your sin through self-effort. In license, you atone for your sin through self-acceptance. Neither way do you need the cross. <laughs> Neither way do you need to be buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, union with Christ by faith. Because the notion in our culture, this kind of licensed antinomian teaching, is that the only thing that grieves God is when I don't accept who I am as fully and freely as God accepts who I am. Friend, the Christian gospel could not be more clear. You're who I am is in the way. You're who I am is the problem. It's not the solution. That's why repentance leads to life. Faith leads to life because repentance is the moment we realize who I am is what got me into this mess. And faith says, I'm looking outside who I am to who he is and what he has done to save me from all that I am and all that I have done. And when we get that gospel right, we start sounding like the Bible. We start sounding like the Apostle Paul says, let me lay down my story for you. Here's my story. I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. The old Paul is gone. A new Paul is here in Christ. Look, friends, the gospel finds us alive to sin and dead to God. And it makes us alive to God and dead to sin. That doesn't mean that the presence of sin is gone from the life of the believer. It means we're dead to the realm where sin calls the shots, where sin bends its scepter in all directions, where sin barks its orders and we come running. We're dead to that realm. That's what your baptism signifies, which is point number two. Your baptism speaks. Why do we here at the Church of Brook Hills, every time we baptize, and there's going to be a baptism in the 11 o'clock service, why, when we put the person underwater, do we say, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life? That is a pattern of sound speech. That language has been handed down to the church over 2,000 years, and it's right in our text in verse 4. Therefore, we were, down you go, buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, that is united to Christ by faith, may walk in newness of life. So the passage, our 11 verses, talks a lot about death. Just look down and let these words just jump off the page. Verse 2, died. Verse 3, death. Verse 4, buried. Verse 4, dead, death crucified, died, died. It's associated terms, 15 of them are used in just 11 verses. He's just talking about death and death and death. And what's the point? He's saying, he's talking about how uh, there's been a break with your former life, a radical break. The, the death metaphor is the most fitting metaphor for what happened to the old you. And baptism dramatizes that reality. Down you go, it's like a watery coffin, and you go down, and it's nailed shut, and then up you come out with resurrection life. 
Your baptism says something, it speaks. Author Sinclair Ferguson, he relates a story, he was a professor of theology, and he relates a story about a, a student from the Far East. Uh, and he became a PhD student, so he said, I had a lot of time with this student. And over the course of time, I developed a relationship, and I got to a place where I could ask him uh, the question. And he said, I, I asked him, what's your, he said the young student's name was Timothy. He said, I asked him, what's your actual name? And the student said, Timothy is my name. And he said, so that's the name your parents gave you at your birth? And then the young man said, spoke his native Asian name. And Ferguson said, so that's your actual name. And, and Timothy said, no, Timothy is my name. Timothy was the name given to me at my baptism. When I decided to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Timothy was my given name, my Christian name. It's the one I'm going with because it marks the most significant difference in my life. Your baptism, friends, is a naming ceremony. That's why the other thing that is said when you are baptized in Christian baptism is, I baptize you, what? In the name, into the name. You are immersed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You get a new name and you live in a new realm. Your baptism shouts. You have a new name and you live in a new realm, which is why for centuries the early church they didn't talk about walking aisles and praying sinners' prayers and so forth. They talked about baptism. You want to make this real? You want to go public with your faith? Let's find you enough water to put you underneath it so you can dramatize the story of what God has done in making your old life go away and bringing you up in new life. And that's why they would catechize the new Christian toward your baptism. They would teach you the Apostles' Creed on the way to the water. And it would take a series, a course of time where they would walk you through phrase after phrase of what the Apostles' Creed means. They're catechizing you on the way to the water. And then from that moment, from the water for the rest of your life, the early church would frequently say, remember your baptism, Christian. Which was their way of just saying, it was shorthand for your thinking that needs to catch up with your new status. Your life now needs to take its primary shape from your baptism. Christian friend, grace isn't a makeover. It's a resurrection. Grace is, is almighty God in answer to the claims of his own infinite justice, paying your debt through the cross of Jesus Christ who inhaled God's just judgment against your sin. In his body on the tree, he inhaled your judgment. Grace is awesome. Grace is powerful. Grace is the blood of Christ cleansing all of our sin. Grace is the work of God the Holy Spirit touching my cold heart and making what was dead live instantaneously by the work of regeneration. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Grace is a work of God the Holy Spirit that hangs a this machine is broken sign over my domesticated religion by which I created a Jesus who is congenial to my standard of living and my lifestyle and life choices. Grace says, that's the end. That's the end of the old you. The old you is gone. Romans 6 is a better story. Romans 6 is the real story. Romans 6 says, grace fired gloriously and hit you center mast and down you went in the bushes at Mr. Jack's house. And then you came up. <laughs> Wonder of wonders, you died 
And then next thing you know, you're alive. You died to the place where sin calls the shots. And now you're alive in another realm. Look, the day before you knew Christ, you were a whole being. You sinned with heart, soul, mind, and strength. You were utterly harmonious internally. And then God turns the lights on and you're regenerated. And grace ruins you for this world. It just ruins you, right? Because you might commit the same sin you committed the day before you met Christ, but when you commit that sin, you commit it, the Puritans would say, with a secret reluctance. That is, there is something in your soul that is yelling, this isn't me. This is that old broken cistern I was hitting left and right before I met Jesus. I know this is broken. I know this is empty. Look, grace doesn't just change your paperwork. Grace moves in and changes the locks. It is a radical intrusion. And for those of you who have not experienced the radical intrusion of grace, may the intrusion begin this morning. May God's grace come and make what was dead live and make what was alive and destroying us die. Ravenhill said years ago, a preacher, he said, may the slain of the Lord be multiplied. The old life gone and a new life in him. If you hadn't, haven't believed in Jesus Christ, let the believing start now. Let's take care of that. Repent, turn from sin, trust in Jesus. And then tell us you've trusted in Jesus and let's, let's walk you over here to the baptistry so that you can go public with your faith. Look, I, I don't know if I'm, if you've ever dated someone who was so bad for you that the day you broke up, you threw a party with your friends. <laughs> That's baptism. Sin was so bad for you that we're going to throw a party with your friends the day you broke up, right? That's why when you come up out of the waters, everybody's cheering and going nuts and clapping their hands. It's like, we saw what sin was doing to you under its reign, under its rule. No more. That is over. There's a new life for you in Christ Jesus. <laughs> in another sense, your baptism is a funeral service for sin's tyranny over your life, which also feels like a party. It's a funeral service for sin's tyranny over your life. Look, legalism says God can't forgive sinners unless they change first. And in response to that, we have Romans chapter 4, where Paul is basically jumping from the top turnbuckle and just bringing an elbow down <laughs> on righteousness through our own works. But license says God can forgive sinners. What he can't do is change them. And for that, we have Romans 6, where Paul jumps from that same turnbuckle, and he says, oh, yes, he can. You died. You died with Christ, in Christ. And third, knowing this or not knowing it affects the way we live. Knowing this or not knowing it affects the way we live. I, um, how many other children of the 80s do we have here in the room? Just raise your hand nice and high. All right. Okay, so we've got several. I feel like, and maybe everybody feels this way, but I feel like um, the 1980s was just a great time to be alive. I mean, the Michael Jackson thriller video came out. Uh, Rocky Balboa defeated uh, Ivan Drago so 
decisively that Gorbachev himself rose to applaud his victory, right? There were youth groups did human videos in the 1980s. I mean, just all kinds of awesome stuff was happening. The Harlem Globetrotters were peaking in the 1980s, Metal Ark Lemon, right? It's just, it was an awesome time to be alive. Um, here's the other thing about the 1980s is I grew up watching maybe the greatest cartoon ever was G.I. Joe. And, and G.I. Joe, here's the thing about G.I. Joe, is at the end of every G.I. Joe, uh, there was, um, the show basically just did a solid for parents and just said, look, here, we're going to help you out. We're going to tell you some things. G.I. Joe is going to tell your kids stuff that they're not listening to when you tell them. But G.I. Joe is going to say it, and it's going to make all the difference, right? So there would be this kind of um, sort of dilemma that is solved by G.I. Joe or you know, so one example is, I'm going to pull up just a video of it in just a second, is a, a kid is basically told to not talk to strangers. And so here's how that goes down. Watch this with me for a second. Is your mom there? No, I'm home alone. Well, you won a prize. What's your address? Uh, 42 Oak Street. Hey, Roblox, some stranger's bringing me a prize. A stranger, huh? All he wanted to bring you was trouble. Remember... Never tell anyone you're home alone, and never give anyone your address. I'll say mom can't come to the phone. Smart thinking. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Yes! Utter greatness! Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Look, a lot of what Paul writes in the book of Romans is saying, I don't want to just tell you the things that happened. I need you to know what happened because knowing it affects the way that you live. You put it this way in your notes. Poor theology impoverishes the Christian. Poor theology impoverishes the Christian. So a big part of studying to interpret texts in God's word is paying attention to the words that are used, the phrases that are used, and trying to pay attention to what does the writer here seem to accent? What does the writer elevate. And it might not be the thing that you're most interested in that the writer is elevating or emphasizing. So for example, one of the things we've seen already so far is Paul is talking a lot about death, die, crucified, buried. So obviously he's trying to elevate that idea of the clean break we have with the life of sin. And then he talks a lot about with Christ and with him and in Christ. So he's using language of union with Christ. So that features and looms large in our text. But there's another thing we haven't looked at yet another set of words that's featured in the early part of the chapter, and it's knowing words. So verse 3, or are you unaware? Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified. He, notice he doesn't simply say, for we, our old self was crucified. He says, we know our old self was crucified. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say if we died with Christ, we will also live with him perfectly true, but he says, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 9, because we know, verse 11, so you consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, should we sin because we're not under law but grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know? Knowing makes a difference. Look, so often as Christians, we we live below the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. And so often the reason we live below the privileges we have in Christ is because we don't 
know the privileges we have in Christ. We don't fully understand what's going on. In that moment of understanding, something clicks. That's why Paul keeps talking about, are you unaware of this? I need to tell you this. You need to believe this. You need to know this. Actor Sally Field wrote a memoir of her life. It's a really hard book to read because her stepfather, among other difficulties in her life, her stepfather, Jocko, was terribly abusive. And I won't go into some of that story, but his, his grip of abuse ended in a really surprising way. She comes to the point in the story where she says that they were in the living room together and her stepdad, Jocko, was just saying demeaning things about her again. And he didn't ma- it didn't matter to him who the audience was, if it was just her in the room or if there were some of her friends. And in this particular room, there was her boyfriend, there was her mom, there was her younger brother. And, and he's just tearing into her, just ripping her to shreds verbally. And, uh, and she said, I, I found myself for the first time in my life, and I did it very haltingly, but I found myself saying, stop it. And then something amazing happened. After she said, stop it, she said, he stood up over me in a familiar stance of power and intimidation. I have the ability to tell what you could not stand to know about yourself. Without thinking or even believing my words, I blurted out, that's not true. And then said it louder, that's not true. Suddenly, I felt like a cuckoo clock at midnight where all the cogs and gears fell into place. I rose up, and it was as though I was watching her stand for the first time. You don't know who I am. She peered into his eyes, and a stunning realization hit me. He was frightened of her. He was frightened of me. In one quick slash, he grabbed me by the neck, lunging with me in his meaty fist toward the sliding glass door that opened to the pool, now dark and covered with leaves, my shoeless feet fluttering in midair. Mom sobered enough to rise as Steve and Ricky haltingly moved toward the clumsy dance but never made it far enough to cut in. I didn't roar or kick or cry. I hung in his overpowering, massive grip, and I knew I had won. And I almost fell out of my chair when I read those words. Hanging in his mighty grip, I knew I had won. And she goes on to say, and he knew it too. We both knew it. And she said that moment totally changed the nature of that relationship. Christian friends, sin and death and guilt and shame have been calling the shots for too long, as if they're still in charge as if you still belong to them, right? And Paul takes up this question about sin's power over the life of the Christian, and he says, what power? What power? You died. You died in the realm where sin calls the shots. You don't live in that realm anymore, and Satan knows it, and sin and death know it, but they're not gonna tell you, so I'm here in Romans 6 to tell you what it is. You're in a new realm now. You don't have to anymore. New things are possible now. Life is possible now. The things that were killing you are losing their hold now. 
And the life that God has for you is here for the taking now. And basically, Paul is writing the way he's writing because he's saying, it's going to be hard to stand in your new life if you're confused about who you are. This is who you are in Christ. You have a new identity. Good news, church, this morning. You died. Grace didn't miss. It caught you center mast and you went down and the old you is gone and will never come back. And now grace has you in its mighty, freeing, liberating grip because God raised you up from death and has new life for you in the power of his spirit. This is, this is great news. And next week, Paul's going to tell us, so what does that look like? How do we step fully into this new life God has for us?